morning. Uh, I'm Hannah Bartlett, and now that you've all just sat down, uh, will you stand with me in reverence <laughs> for the reading of God's Word? So this is from Mark 9, 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Uh, I was told there's more coffee. You might need some for this sermon. <laughs> oh, man. Well, imagine, imagine a God who is utterly unjudgmental, completely accepting, totally unconcerned with sin. This is a God who, who would give unqualified approval to any and everything that you might do. So there's nothing that you could do to disappoint this God. There's no way he could ever disapprove of you or anything you do. Your every move would be met with a resounding two thumbs up. There'd be no fear with a God like this of ever facing rebuke, of ever facing restraint, of ever facing discipline, of ever facing punishment, or any other consequence from a God like this. You would be utterly free to live however you would want to. Perhaps, if there was a God like this, that this would usher in a new utopic age without violent religious tribalism, as anyone could legitimately know that all paths led to this God. It would be an utterly unworried existence. Or would it? Because this would, by definition, have to apply not just to you and all your moral perfection and your inability to ever harm someone else, but it would have to apply to the unsavory characters of the world as well. This God would have to look on approvingly at Derek Chauvin on the back of George Floyd. This God would have to look happily, he'd have to happily accept the cries of Ukrainian children trapped under the rubble of their destroyed homes. This God would have to cheer on the Chinese officers rounding up Uyghur Muslims for brutal and deathly re-education camps. And to go there, yes, we always go, if you're, especially if you're arguing on the internet, this God would have to accept and give two thumbs up even to the grand aspirations of Adolf Hitler. To make it even more personal, this God would happily look on your life's deepest, darkest moments of suffering at the hands of another person with approval. 
And we have today's passage. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most graphic and disturbing in the gospel according to Mark. In fact, it's the only time in Mark that the word hell, translated from the Greek uh, Gehenna, comes up. Um, if this is your first time joining us at Door of Hope Northeast, <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's not always hellfire and brimstone. But today it is, because that's what Jesus is talking about today. This is the kind of passage, uh, well, this is a passage full of gruesome images. Execution by drowning, he starts us off, but then Jesus doesn't just leave us there. He moves to self-mutilation, the lopping off of appendages and poking out of eyeballs. Then we get to the unquenchable fires of hell. It's the kind of passage that makes some of us want to turn to a God like I just spent a second asking you to imagine. This is one of those passages that if, if we weren't committed to walking through books of the Bible, you know, section by section, not skipping anything, that I might never opt to preach to you. If you know me very well, you know my temperament. This is not my wheelhouse. It's just not. But we are committed to it. Committed, committed to taking what comes in the scriptures, regardless. And nonetheless, we are convinced that all of the scriptures were breathed out by God, trustworthy, authoritative, and useful for us, including this one. And so whatever is gonna, whatever's going on in this passage, we believe it is ultimately God's word for our good. So stick with me as we jump in. You know, the first few verses, really the whole passage, you could say there's a big emphasis here. This is our first point on the sinfulness of sin. Jesus jumps in in verse 42 with this this discussion of someone who causes one of these little ones to sin. Or actually, it doesn't use uh, harmartia, the typical Greek word for sin. It uses the word for, it's often translated stumbling. But sin is a fine translation. If you cause one to sin or to stumble... There's a harsh warning there. And this is a harsh warning to his disciples. Remember, Jesus is having this little mini conversation. This is not disconnected from what we read about last week where the disciples were asking about this other exorcist who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Like, hey, we shouldn't let him do this, right? This conversation continues and we get here and Jesus says, in fact, if there's anyone, any one of these little ones that you cause to stumble in their relationship with God or to sin, there is grave consequence. So who are the little ones? Well, it's probably any follower of Jesus, but that, that term little one, it, goes, it takes us back to that image just a couple weeks ago where Jesus sat a child on his lap and said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, like you serve this child, you lift this child up. There is no one, no matter how insignificant they seem, that you are greater than or bigger than or whatever in my kingdom. Greatness is achieved through humility, self-sacrificial love, giving to the other, down to these little children. So Jesus already kind of laid out a kind of landscape for us to think about greatness. So he's calling back to that. But I don't think he's referring just to children, but he is replaying on that image. Even the least of it, even the least, the person you would think the least about amongst God's family, if you cause even that little one to sin, to stumble, then what? Then what? What's the crime here? Causing them to sin, to stumble, Um, This is by how you are relating to another member in the family of God. You're causing them to falter. You're causing them to sin. You're causing them to turn away in unbelief from the Lord. One commentator described this as, as inhibiting, injuring, or destroying the faith of simple and ordinary disciples. 
It's doing spiritual harm to a brother or sister in the faith. That's what Jesus is talking about. And now we get to what's the punishment? Well, he, he doesn't say what the punishment is specifically, but he says it's something worse than drowning without a burial. He takes this graphic image. They, t- they had these huge millstones that, oh, that were so heavy only a donkey could turn them. And he says, imagine that tied to one's neck and being thrown into the sea. He says, that gruesome, disturbing, dark, ugly image is better than what would befall someone who hinders one of these little ones in their relationship with me. Okay. That's the, just the first controversy. We haven't even started talking about hell yet. <laughs> Look, for most of us, myself absolutely included, we hear this and our first reaction is to be scandalized. Because we've been tracking with Jesus, especially if you've read the Gospel of Mark before, you've been tracking with us through these nine chapters as we've been teaching through the whole book. You, we've got these ideas about Jesus and how he does or doesn't deal with sin, how harsh he is or he isn't. And then he throws this, this statement out here. And, and, and we're scandalized, and I think the source of that scandal is that we tend to view God when we hear things like this as some sort of a cosmic buzzkill. You're like, come on. Like, what could possibly be worth, like, a punishment worse than what he's describing here? And I think there's this dynamic, too, where we read this passage, and, and we read it from the perspective of the perpetrator, the one who's committing the sin. You, you put yourself in this, you go, oh, man. That's a hard word against me, potentially, Jesus. Come on, is it really that bad? And it's good and correct to view yourself in that role. But we view ourselves as this perpetrator who just needs a little bit of understanding, right? Like, well, yeah, okay, maybe I hindered someone, maybe I harmed someone, maybe I caused someone to sin, but you know, there's a context to my story. There's good reason for the way I am the way that I am. If you really knew Jesus, you wouldn't be so uptight about these things that I do, these shortfalls that I have. Why can't this God just be chill? (laughs) Why can't he just give people a break? Why can't he be like that God we described at the beginning of the sermon? That's where our mind goes. I bet for most of us. But I challenge you to think of this from the other perspective. Every time we get to these passages... I challenge you to think of the innocent victim in need of protection from this person. What strikes us as terrifying at first glance is like water in the desert for those who have experienced these wounds. Whose faith has been hindered by the sin of a brother or a sister. Maybe you yourself have been the victim of some serious wound or abuse that has had deep spiritual consequences, which abuse always does. Always spiritual consequences to receiving something like that. For you, if that's you, I want you to see in this passage that God cares so much more than we could ever imagine about that. And he will not let your perpetrator get away unscathed. You see that? He cares so deeply about these little ones that he says, no, this is not okay. It's not okay in my kingdom and in my family. I won't allow it. This is the language of a loving father coming to the aid of his vulnerable child. That's what this is. The the Bible depicts the love of God as wholly compatible, as much as it might 
rile our sensibilities for whatever reason, the love of God is wholly compatible with his judgment, his justice, his anger, even his wrath. They're like the flip side of the same coin. You could say the anger of God is just his love violated. When his loves, the people that he loves are violated, God is angry, and we should thank God for that. So to sin against a brother or a sister to the degree that they stumble in their faith is to wound them in the matters that are of the absolute deepest importance, right? If if all this Jesus stuff is real, then to sin, to cause someone to stumble is to wound them at the absolute deepest level. It's to jeopardize the place where they might receive their deepest good, their deepest love. And then remember who Jesus is speaking to here. This wasn't his message for the crowds. This is his message for the 12. In fact, his harshest words of judgment are always reserved for the disciples or for the hypocritical religious leaders of Israel. So there's a leadership lesson here in how you lead. Do not give yourself over to sin and thereby cause others to sin in this way. We could think of all kinds of illustrations of this. Specifically, it comes to Christian leadership. Every month, it feels like, every week maybe, it feels like some other high-profile Christian leader has some kind of moral scandal exposed. And I don't know any of these people. I can't uh, really speak with intelligence you know, or intimacy to any of it. But these things carry wound. Even just something disconnected from abusing directly a church member, but like a pastor caught in an affair or something. It is a wound to everyone. It's a wound to me from these, I read the article and my faith shrivels a little bit. I'm like, is the Holy Spirit even real? Is God even at work in his people? I know the answer is yes, but experientially, those are the things I go through every time I hear another one of these stories. How much more so for the people in these communities directly? Abusive religious leaders, false teachers, people just actively teaching things that would draw people away from the truth. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. We could think of countless examples, I'm sure. But in the end, you don't have to be a religious leader. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be a deacon. You don't have to be a worship leader. You don't have to be a leader in the kids' ministry to do this to someone else. I think this transcends the office that the twelve hold. But nonetheless, this is very, very frightening for me as someone with a measure of spiritual authority and leadership. And I'd be a fool not to tremble under this passage as I speak it to you, and I have been all week. Let's keep reading. So he moves down from talking about whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now he says, and if you, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one hand than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We'll pause there. So just these repeated graphic images Get rid of your hand, get rid of your foot, get rid of your eye if it means saving yourself from sin and its consequences. And this is kind of a sidebar, but note, uh, 
We go from verse 42 to 43 to what? 45. Huh. 45 to what? Wait. Where's 46? We go straight to 47. We're missing two verses, huh? Well, that's just because I don't like those verses. I didn't want to preach those. No, I'm just kidding. I loved the other ones. I loved, I loved these, but you don't want to see the ones that I cut out. No, this is a, uh, an issue related to textual criticism. Um, unless you're reading the King James Version. Anybody reading the King James? It's great if you are. You've got King James. So you've got those verses probably. Um, what they are is verse 48, uh, scholars believe, was, was, uh, was copied back in after verses 45 and after 43 and 45, that little tag about, about the worm in the fire. Um, and if you, you know, as we are always un- uncovering new biblical manuscripts, ancient ones, we, we have good reason to think that the, the earliest manuscripts show those, that phrase was not repeated. It was only there in 48. So King James was, you know, produced at its time, and there's a great, you know, respect, a good, well-founded respect for the King James. Uh, but more modern translations have said, oh, actually, if we want to get closer to the original Versus those, that repetition was not there. So anyway, if you read that and you're scandalizing, what is the Illuminati trying to keep from me in my Bible? Uh, <laughs> uh, you can lay your fears to rest. Uh, we still have that phrasing there in verse 48. We just, we, th- we believe that it probably wasn't there three times. Um, so, thought we needed to comment on that because your, your uh, Bible might seem to be missing verses. Anyway, back to it. I want to be very clear, for anyone, any one of you, I know some of you Portlanders, for any of you prone to extreme literalism, um, Jesus is not asking you to self-mutilate here. Um, Jesus kept and fulfilled the Torah, which expressly forbids uh, self-mutilation of one's body in several places. But he, he used such intense imagery nonetheless to shock you, to shock you, and to shock me. These words are meant to disturb, as are many other words of Jesus. He's provoking you and provoking me that we might sit up in our chairs, lean in, and really contemplate what he's trying to tell us. So though he's not saying literally cut your hand off, he does want the extremity of that to make you just zero in on what in the world is going on here. And what's he trying to tell us? Here's the point. The point of all this is that Jesus not only cares about you leading others astray, But he cares about dealing with the places inside you where you're leading yourself astray. He doesn't just care about the external effects of your choices on others, though he does care about that quite seriously. It's not just that, but but about how they affect you in your deepest places. He's pleading with you. He's pleading with you to understand. To understand. Stand the gravity of indulging anything that might cause you to sin and to do anything necessary to get rid of it, to flee from it, whatever it is. Something's causing you to sin, spare no expense to get it out of your life. Is your smartphone causing you to sin? Get rid of it. For some of us, that feels worse than losing a hand, you know? Is it substance? Is it alcohol? causing you to sin, get rid of it. Whatever it is, get rid of it. So now we ask the question again. Jesus, 
Are you just a cosmic buzzkill? You're just a cosmic buzzkill. Why are you so serious about sin? Of course, pastor's going to say the answer is no. He's not a cosmic buzzkill. Believing that requires the belief that, that the things God defines as sin are just arbitrary. But they really aren't. They're all things that violate the heart of every divine commandment. You know what the heart of every divine commandment is? Fortunately, Jesus told us. It's to love God and to love your neighbor. That's what the commands of God all filter back through, if you, if, if you can gain the eyes to see. What I submit to you is that Jesus is wholeheartedly, beautifully, crucially committed to the protection and preservation of love, righteousness, goodness, truth, beauty, and justice to a degree that we imagine we share with him, but in reality we do not. Even when we shout really loud about it, we do not. Take a related passage. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. You'll, you'll clearly see the parallels. Uh, perhaps what, what Mark is recording is kind of a truncated version of a similar teaching. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27, you've probably all heard this. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than, <laughs> than that your whole body go into hell. This is a really good example for us because I think we instinctively, most of us would say, okay, adultery, yes, very, very bad. But then you hear Jesus talk about lust and you're like, buzzkill, who cares? Who, who am I hurting if I entertain lust? Who am I hurting? Well, if you've ever been the victim of infidelity, I haven't, but if you have, I'd imagine it's like, a, like water in the desert to hear Jesus say, not only do I care about your unfaithful spouse's adultery, but I actually want his heart or her heart to be so transformed and that like, like so serious about honoring me and honoring the spouse, and honoring the community, honoring the other person who was involved in this, that like they would take even the first hint of this thing captive before it ever has a chance to bloom and blossom. Amen? Take sexual abuse. Hopefully all of us are horrified and grieved by the thought of anyone experiencing it. I hope every single one of us say, yes, horrible, grieving, heinous, whatever. But our horror and grief typically only goes so far with ourselves. We can easily entertain these kinds of lusts and objectifications and depersonifications that if we're honest, when we give them enough room to grow, those are the things that turn into abusive action. Jesus is so set on the protection and flourishing of peace and health for his people that he wants to get to the deepest root. He wants to do heart surgery. And we all say, yeah, yeah, this, bad, this stuff is really bad. But he says, no, 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 I want the seed. I want it where it starts, in my kingdom, in my family. You know why? Because goodness reigns here. Peace, protection, love of neighbor, of brother and sister reigns here. So the logic of all these verses, first and foremost, do you see it? 
Jesus is talking about the exceeding sinfulness of sin and its dire consequences because he so deeply loves his little ones. Not because he's a buzzkill, not because he's a jerk, not because he can't keep things in proportion, but because he loves. And his disciples are meant to share this heart. But now we have to talk about hell. We have to talk about hell. Jesus says, in effect, that it is better to be maimed as you enter into life, or he says, as you enter into the kingdom of God, he uses these synonymously here, than to be thrown into hell, translated from the Greek word Gehenna. And this passage, as I said, it's the only time that Jesus mentions hell or Gehenna in the gospel according to Mark, which means we need to take the time to dive into it. This is our opportunity, if we're going to examine this through our time in Mark, to really dive deeply into it. Um, more than that, you can't just read something like this and zoom past it like everything's cool. Like I was just like, yeah, so anyway, treat one another kindly, and anyway, let's pray and get out of here. I don't think that'd satisfy anybody. The doctrine of hell is one of the most challenging doctrines in Christianity. Many people have walked away from their faith, have walked away from their discipleship to Jesus over this doctrine. Less than that, or I mean, maybe less extreme than that, many people have just been thrown into abject confusion as they're trying to hang on to a relationship with Jesus, but the doctrine like this is just so disorienting and confusing and strange. And there are many, many who continue to follow Jesus and not reject what Jesus and the other biblical authors have to say about hell, but still agonize over it. Still agonize over it. My own journey with how I've reacted to the doctrine of hell, it's ebbed and it's flowed uh, the more that I've learned and reflected over the years, but there are many aspects that still deeply unsettle me. Cards on the table. But one of the most helpful things for me in my own journey um, has been to recognize how many extra-biblical or non-biblical assumptions that we bring to the table when we hear a word like hell. So what I want to do for a second is just take a few minutes to clear away a few points of, of debris, really, before putting forward what I think are a few basic parameters we can draw based on what the Bible teaches about hell. So, a few clarifications. Number one, the fires of hell or Gehenna were lit by God's people in their idolatry. Most of the time when you read the word hell in your English Bible, it's translating the Greek word Gehenna, which itself is a transliteration of a Hebrew term, Gehenom, which simply means the Valley of Hinnom. And funny enough, the Valley of Hinnom is a place you can go visit today, just southwest of the old city of Jerusalem. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I were uh, fortunate enough to go on a guided tour through Israel. Um, and I remember this day we were on a bus kind of going around Jerusalem, and the, the guy on the, the intercom was like, okay, and if you look to your left, you can see the Valley of Hinnom. And I had actually just so happened to be kind of in the middle of like reading a few books on hell and kind of re, you know, freshly diving into this and trying to make sense of it. So that uh, pinged me. I was like, I may have even said to Susanna, like, hey, that, that's hell. That's hell down there. Check this out. So I snapped a picture actually from the bus. Uh, so that's from our bus looking down into the valley southwest of Jerusalem, that's hell, the Valley of Hinnom. You can go see it today. You can Google it, find more pictures. Pretty unassuming. Pretty unassuming. But all joking aside, 
Uh, in some ways, it's unfortunate that our English Bibles, for the most part, don't make clear the reference to this valley because its significance is so crucial carried over from the Old Testament. Um, the Valley of Hinnom was a valley just outside of Jerusalem where some of Israel's most spiritually corrupt kings led it, God's people into some of its darkest and unjust practices. Namely, they worshipped the pagan gods Baal and Melech and through through Malek's preferred method. You know how Malek liked to be worshipped? Child sacrifice. Child sacrifice, usually through fire. Usually through fire. So this was the valley where God's people gave themselves over to false gods, literally to burn their children in the fires to try to satiate these gods that they'd given themselves to. After that, King Josiah, who is one of the healthy reforming kings, he rededicated the Hinnom Valley as a garbage dump with burning trash after these practices had ended. He took what was this religious altar to false gods and he said, this is now our garbage dump in an act of righteousness, an act of kind of reconstitution. And apparently it was the garbage dump, burning trash, like up through Jesus' time as well. But the shame of that dark history <laughs> was hard to overcome, and it commingled with the garbage dump Im imagery and began to be used in intertestamental uh, writings as a symbol of the place where God would execute his final judge judgment against the wicked. So Gehenna was the place where Israel gave itself over to its deepest, darkest idolatry, sacrificed its children to the fires, and isn't it fitting that that would become the very place where the people of God would face that very same judgment? Clarification two, when the Bible speaks of hell, it typically does so with figurative language. That doesn't mean nonsense language, that doesn't mean language we can dismiss, but it means like when we read about the Bible, when we read about hell in the Bible, it's presented with parables, the parables of Jesus, a few parables, using prophetic imagery, uh, in symbol-rich apocalyptic literature like we read in Revelation, and likely with metaphoric implication. For example, compare the image Jesus uses of the unquenchable fire, like we have here, with what he says in Matthew 8, 12, where you're thrown into the outer darkness. So instantly, just taking those two images, you go, okay, these don't mean nothing, but fire produces light, outer darkness seems to be a very different thing, and you're immediately forced to reconcile. What do we do with all these images? My point is, don't, we, I don't think we, we're fair to Jesus, we're fair to the scripture when we take all these uh, linguistic, figurative uses and we try to flatten them into strictly literalistic terms. Or else we'd instantly be full of contradictions. Is it outer darkness? Is it a burning fire that never goes out? Clarification three. We often import cultural ideas into the word hell that aren't found in the Bible especially the idea of a God who delights in torture. So there's mistaken ideas we take for granted. Like, I mean, a, a work of, a great work of art that's left an incredible mark on kind of our collective theological imagination is something like Dante's Inferno. Actually, there's gonna be a group reading Dante's Inferno, which I think is great. I'm not trashing Dante's Inferno. It's a beautiful work of art. It's well worth considering. I think it would be spiritually significant for anyone to read. 
But nonetheless, the idea of hell depicted there, it's very, very detailed. It's very, very grotesque. Uh, it's very, very, I mean, it's wild if you've ever read any of that. And I think we all kind of collect, that has just left such an, a mark on our imagination that when we, we read hell in the Bible or Gehenna or one of the other words that gets translated hell, we go, oh yeah, like Dante, where people are thrown into this thing that like, it's like this cruel like, kind of inversion of what their sin was and it's like, and you, you, you kind of leave with this idea that man, God is so delighted in the absolute torture of these people that he created. And I just submit to you that that idea is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Nowhere to be found in the Bible. So let that, let that data point make its way into your conception of hell. Clarification four, last one for now. The God who allows people to enter into hell is the same loving, serving, just, kind, merciful God that we know through Jesus. And you might go, well, no, he's not, because that seems like, sure seems like a contradiction. I just, there's no person in the Bible who talks about hell more than Jesus. Did you know that? The word hell comes from the lips of Jesus in the Gospels more than anyone else in the New Testament. So we can't try to pit like angry, fiery God versus loving, cool servant Jesus and think that, oh, there's this weird dichotomy. No. Jesus talks about hell. The same Jesus who would lay down his life for his enemies. The same Jesus who weeps over the afflicted. The same Jesus who stands in the place of sinners. Somehow, in his economy, what he's describing here, this hell he's describing, is just. And it's not in contradiction with that character. And at the very least, you can say, well, I know Jesus, and I know he's not a, sad a sadistic torture master. Amen? So, there's so much more we could say. There's maybe other things we could try to clarify, but I just want those four ideas to kind of make their way into your conceptualization of hell. And then I want to say this, as far as the basic idea of hell. The Bible makes it clear that hell is real. It's eternal, and it involves the ideas of punishment, destruction, and banishment at the very least. But I want to focus in on this idea of banishment because, because I think that's in keeping with the themes of this passage, the particular way Jesus is conceptualizing it here. Banishment is the flip side of protection. Ever think about that? When God completes his work of redeeming and restoring the creation in the new heavens and the new earth. He brings his kingdom into its full reality, which he's going to do one day. What hell means is that he will protect this new world, this recreated world. He will protect his kingdom. He will protect his children. He will protect his children from the people who have chosen to embrace and remain in sin and evil. Those who have refused the King, King Jesus and his ability to clean us up from the inside out. There's significance to that image 
of Gehenna as outside the city walls. A lot of the things, even you read Revelation, read about the lake of fire, that's another image. It's outside the city. And that's the image, that's the idea that inside here, people are safe. People are protected, people are taken care of. There will no longer be any of this stuff that mars and destroys the people that God loves. So outside the city, for anyone who refuses to be cleaned up, to be healed, to be made safe for this new community is where they must be. If he's going to actually be good to anyone. He's going to protect. You know, the consequences of sin, they're not always, but they're often depicted as, as the giving over of, of someone to the consequences of their own actions. Combined with what we know of the general character of God, these ideas paint a much, I think, a much more understandable and necessary picture of what it might mean for God to remove people, not only from his relational presence, but from the presence of the covenant people that he has to protect if he's going to be any good. There is agony in hell, but it's primarily the agony of separation from the loving God of the universe, the source of all goodness and truth and life and beauty and justice and healing and peace. That's the agony. And what's really interesting, you read like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, talking about a man in hell. It doesn't even seem like he wants to be with God. <laughs> it's so strange. But we continue on. There's a little bit on hell. There's more to say. If you're, if you're in this room and you're like, I'm freaking out about this. Can't believe we're one of those churches that would, that would believe in hell. Um, I just invite you, like, shoot me an email. I'd love to sit down and process. There's more than, so much more than you can say in 10 minutes on this subject. Um, don't keep your questions bottled up inside. This is a safe place to bring them up and to share. I promise you. There you go. So in the end, if we can go back to the scripture. In the end, we've got a picture of Jesus who cares so much about his little ones. He cares so much about them that tragically there must be this thing we call hell to protect them in the final day. And here's the thing. You read this passage about your eyes causing sin, you certainly cross-reference it with the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, and the idea that, man, even, <laughs> like even what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your spirit is just as spiritually deadly as your actions, and we're all complicit. You should see that. There are none of us <laughs> who, who, who quite get out of this. There's none of us who, according to our own efforts, our own strength, our own in, inner sense of goodness would be safe for the new creation for our brothers and sisters. I wouldn't be. The reality is that we all fail to measure up to God's standard of goodness. We have wounded our brothers and sisters. It's not an if, one day maybe I will wound someone. You have. You have wounded someone. You have wounded a brother or sister in Christ. You've wounded an image bearer of God somewhere, some way. It's done. 
We all have played fast and loose with sin. We've justified our sin while heightening the sins of others. We've all made our contributions to the fires of this world. And you know what we deserve? If God is actually going to be good, Gehenna. But, what the disciples couldn't see yet at this point in the story, we have the knowledge of. Jesus is on his way as he's telling this teaching. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus was going to be given over and he was going to suffer at the hands of human idolatry and evil. And don't miss the significance here. Jesus was forced to carry his cross where? Outside the city. He was banished. He was removed. He was taken out. He was out from Jerusalem, out from amongst his people, punished outside the city. And Jesus was the one who was executed, not by a millstone around his neck, but arguably by something far more cruel. A Roman cross displayed naked as an enemy of the state, humiliated, beaten, killed. And he did all this to save his people in their place. It's the cross where we see that Jesus takes sin deathly seriously. He's not the God of casual acceptance of evil. He's not the God who says, yeah, yeah, I'm just cool with everything. He says, sin is so gruesome that it, it, its consequence requires me to face it head on, on this Roman cross. But the cross is the same place we see that his, his grace and his mercy reaches even deeper. What is the fundamental disposition of our God towards sin and evil and hell? At least towards his people wrapped up in those things. 2 Peter 3.9 says that he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. John 3.16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus pleads with his people to come and receive his grace, his forgiveness, his healing, his restoration, and yes, a new heart and a promise of a resurrection where our own sin will finally be gone once and for all. And he offers this to any and all without distinction. You might say, after all this talk about the sinfulness of sin, the fires of hell, and all that, and maybe, maybe you're convinced, like, okay, I see why sin needs to be quarantined, and it needs to be dealt with, and it needs to be kept out, but can't God just offer a little grace? That's what he's done! That's what the cross is! Can't Jesus, can't he just, I don't know, couldn't he just foot the bill? Yes! He did! That is the central heart of the gospel. That though all of this stuff we've been talking about is true, he says, I'm going to do it for you. 
I go to the cross so you don't have to. I'm banished outside the city so you never have to be. My life is laid down that yours, you might be raised up to newness of life. That's my king right there. Yeah. Amen. You can't understand hell and judgment and the justice of God without seeing Jesus taking it upon himself in the world's greatest act of love. So it's no contradiction that from the same mouth Jesus gives this message and then he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as the nails are hammered in. He has done and is doing everything necessary to redeem his people. Any who will receive him, any who will trust him, any who will repent and just come to him, receive the free gift that he has. So he pleads with us to come and receive all these things. Have you received them? It's free. It's free. And then he concludes. And this is actually, these verses are pretty enigmatic. I've been puzzling over them. I'm kind of convinced by what, what, what a lot of scholars suggest is that verse 49 and 50, they kind of start this, like, there are these teachings of Jesus that Mark has chosen to group together through kind of these word associations, almost like a memory device. A lot of people think maybe this was a unit of teaching from the early church that people grouped together because common words tied together so you could remember it. Oh, yeah. We're talking about fire, and then we talk, fire makes the connection to salt, and then salt, talking about saltiness, and then that, then he brings it back into this conclusion about peace with one another. So everyone will be salted with fire. Enigmatic statement from Jesus. Verse 50, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, now how will you make it salty again? And another one, second half of verse 50, have salt in yourselves. And now here's where he ties this whole unit back together and be at peace with one another. In case you've lost the thread on all these teachings of Jesus, including this one about hell and this crazy stuff that we're reading about, says, so remember the point, peace with one another. The spiritual dangers of playing around with sin are vast, but now he holds it up from the other side, the positive side, the positive ideal, be at peace with one another. I think we can say these things. If you've tasted, if you've tasted the kind of forgiveness that Jesus has offered, if you've been served and saved by the God-man, the anointed king of the kingdom of God, if you've been given peace with God by the death of Christ, then act like it with how you actually treat and love and serve and pursue deep, genuine peace with your brothers and sisters, your fellow disciples of Jesus. And you know what? Do whatever is necessary to kill anything that would get in the way of that. Because the church is full of sinners me just as much as anyone in this room. And we're gonna fail each other and we're gonna mess up, but the ideal is that the church would be such a, so committed to this idea of repentance, trusting Jesus, turning from our sin, being serious about getting rid of it, coming to him for grace when we, when we fail, of course, but that the world could look at us and say that group of people is different. That's not how any other social club on this planet works. 
They do what's necessary to care for and serve and love one another. So our application is to do what is necessary to kill the sin in our lives that we might be this kind of preview of the kind of community that Jesus is building. It's going to be in fits and starts. It's going to be flawed in the here and now. But a day is coming for all of us who have called on Christ, received him, trusted in him. We will all be united in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no sin amongst us. The ways I fail you currently, no more. The way you fail me or anyone else in this room, no more. The way we abuse and hinder one another, gossip about one another, you know, I don't know, steal money, forget to Venmo the other person back or whatever. (laughs) There are more and less serious versions of this. But all the way, it's it's over. It'll be a thing of ancient history. There will be thousands of years in the future we will remember, oh yeah, remember what it was like when sin was in this world and in this body and in this heart? So the goal in the here and now is by the power, the empowering supernatural presence of God's spirit to start acting like it now. Not perfectly, but striving for it by his grace. It's the kind of community I long for us to be. And it's only going to happen by his empowerment. Amen? Let's pray.